Welcome to the second episode of the second season of Iran Uncovered. I'm your co-host, Cameron Consarinia, Policy Director of Nufti here in Washington uh, with my friend and co-host, Dr. Saeed Qasimijad in New York. Saeed, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Good to, good to see you again. Uh, and even better uh, to be with uh, our friend and colleague and our guest today, uh, Behnam Ben Talablu. Behnam is a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, where he focuses on Iranian security and political issues. He's long worked on nonproliferation, arms control, the IRGC, the foreign policy of the Islamic Republic, and internal Iranian politics. Now, for his expertise and, of course, his debonair tie selection, which he's deprived us of today, Behnam is often called upon by governments, including the U.S. Congress and the Canadian Parliament, and by international journalists at the Washington Post, the AB, Agence France Presse, and many more. And you can read his excellent insight and thoughtful analysis in both foreign policy and foreign affairs. Now, he learned all of this studying international relations at the University of Chicago and international relations and Middle Eastern studies at GW. In addition to all of this, as I said, uh, Behnam is a fine analyst, but an even finer friend. And Behnam, uh, Said and I are very happy to have you today. Welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be with you both, and uh, especially great to be with Nufti. Yeah, we're, we're, we're excited to have you and, and, uh, and glad that you're joining us. Now, Behnam, I, I want to jump right into this, and we're going to get to a lot of the policy stuff and you know things that you and Said and I uh, talk about pretty frequently. But before that, if I can just ask, you know, you were, you know, like me, born uh, here in the States. How, how did, but you're obviously of Iranian heritage. How did you get into uh, this line of work? I mean, how did you go into the field of Iran analysis and, and Iran study? What was, what was that decision like? I mean, is that something that was important to you growing up or how did you fall into this world? You also need to explain your middle name because Behnam and I was uh, were colleague for many years. And I thought he was he was a, uh, he was from Khuzestan, Arab tribes of Khuzestan. So <laughs> because his middle name is Ben. You know, it, it's an excellent question. The, the, the second one is easier to explain than the first. Uh, ben is my legal middle name. Uh, sometimes I used to go by it when I was younger, uh, but technically it doesn't you know have the function of son of, which is you know Ben in Arabic or Ben in Hebrew. My parents just wanted a short English-sounding uh, middle name. Uh, and, you know, because my handwriting was and remains bad, and because some people uh, <laughs> then couldn't and still can't pronounce Vietnam, they would call me by my middle name. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, I like to have it there in like a full name, first name, middle name, last name. And some people think it's part of the, the last name, but no, it's just a, it's, a, it's my middle name and I like to have it out there. I, I thought it was, it was either that or your parents wanted to give you an easy, you know, band to go by if you didn't want to go by Vietnam. Well, that, 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 that's, you know, probably part of it, but, um, you know, it's also, it is my, you know, legal middle name. Okay. Now, so, so tell us how did, so you, you have the name, we've solved, we've solved that issue. How, how and why did you, did you get into this Iran space? Well, you know, you know, kind of like what you mentioned about yourself, uh, you know, I grew up here in the States, both to, to two Iranian immigrant parents, uh, and also kind of enmeshed in, uh, you know, the, the social and the familial structure, you know, seeing what they spoke about Iran, how they spoke about Iran, the Iran that they remember, the Iran that they would conjure up in their stories, uh, the Iran you would hear about in different mehmunis or dinner parties, uh, and the Iran that you would see cast up on television, the Iran ruled by the clerics today, the Iran that was always in the news, the Iran that was doing something uh, against human rights, or the Iran that was doing something in the region, or the Iran that was involved in terrorism, or the Iran that 
you know, really in the 2000s to present is kind of synonymous uh, with the nuclear quest or synonymous uh, with uh, trying to get a nuclear bomb. So I've always been someone of a historical bent, maybe some, not all the literature behind uh, reflects that. I always thought I'd be, you know, working in some kind of archaeological uh, field, but as I grew up and the Iran issues also grew in intensity, um, you know, I wanted to do something with that historical knowledge to bring it to bear for, you know, the, the public good or the, the, to bring it into uh, the present. Um, and so I think, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, my work as a, as a think tanker here in Washington, it's, it's a nonprofit job, but I like to think of it as a, something of a smaller public service because you're taking part of a larger public debate. Uh, and let's just hope that we can all be abreast of that history uh, as we take part of that larger debate. So it's a personal passion, but I have the luxury of making that personal passion uh, a professional quest. And you've, you've certainly done uh, a great job of it. And, and I want to just hop right in here. There's there's a, a piece that you all, and I, I want to kick this off to Said because he was your your co-author talking about the the events that that we see in Iran um, and, you know, the unfortunate consequences, one of many of, of you know, clerical rule um, is something that we're on the, the two-year anniversary of um, coming up here in, in a week or two, which are the, the Aban protests and, and the ensuing massacre. And, you know, you and Said and another one of your colleagues wrote about that site. I, I, you know, maybe good to hop into that. Yeah. So, yeah, we are close to the anniversary of the Aban protest also known as the Bloody November. You, I, and Eliora, Eliora Katz, you wrote a piece about uh, the November protest, its meaning, its importance, its consequences. And when the protest happened, many Western analysts who are friendly to the regime uh, tried to portray it as just a protest against the increase in gas price. We, on the other hand, we believed at the, at the time we wrote it later down, that we, we believed it to be a transformative moment in a transformative trend that had started two years ago, two years before the protest. So explain it, make the, make the case for our claim. Well, yeah, yeah you know, you are as, as unlike uh, Kamran and I, you actually you know, grew up in Iran, you actually got to partake in political events, protest movements, you're more intricately familiar with the, the various iterations of protests in the 90s and earlier 2000s and the student movement and the failure of the reform movement uh, than both of us by virtue of your lived experience. Um, but I think the, the paper that you mentioned, which we three, uh, me, you and Eliora co-authored, uh, and whose uh, anniversary uh, that was triggered by the Alban protests we're about to come up on, uh, is exactly a good example of doing what I was just saying, which is try to situate you know, a present headline with historical context. Uh, if you look at a lot of these issues in Iran today, like just a, a screenshot, uh, and you put into my you screenshot, you put it into Microsoft Paint, and you look at this issue, uh, you only see uh, the breadth of the issue. You don't see the depth of the issue. What we did in that paper is situated within the larger historical context of different uh, society versus state protests. And what we saw is really an evolution in the way that street protests uh, had developed uh, inside Iran. We had a bunch of different measures, geography, demography, even slogans, violence, even is an interesting measure, both the willingness of the public, uh, as well as, of course, the greater willingness of the regime to bring weapons of war 
against their own population uh, to check these protests. And there had been an evolution uh, in this. And really, we, we, we draw a sharp line after 2009, uh, looking at the 1999 and 2009 protests as being triggered by political events, the closure of a reformist newspaper, uh, a stolen election that featured a reformist candidate. Uh, and we look at the evolution of those protests starting in 2017, also trending for, uh, also controlling for the rise of things like nationalism, also controlling for things like urban versus rural divides. And uh, we basically see that these later iterations of protests, regardless of what their trigger is, a political trigger, an economic trigger, or social trigger, an environmental trigger, like some of the protests that we saw earlier this summer, uh, they are sustained by a political grievance. And that political grievance is not the quest for reform. It's actually pushing past reform. It's openly seeking revolution rather than abiding by the very narrow confines of Iranian domestic politics today as defined by the Islamic Republic. People by virtue of where they would go, what they would do, what they would say, and what they would chant are actively seeking revolution. And so it's society in a way grabbing these taboo issues uh, with grabbing them on the third rail with two hands. And so in short, it means that if you look at the protests from 2017 to present, uh, those are protests in favor of revolution and not reform. And we posit that, uh, and we even had a test case at the end, we posit that if the Iranian public uh, chose to further disavow those former uh, institutions of reform, parliamentary elections, presidential elections, and you see with the most recent super low historic turnouts in 2020 and 2021 that they would, that this is more proof of them staying on the side of revolution rather than being put back towards reform. Yeah, and we wrote it in early 2020, I think got published in summer of 2020, and we were quite, uh, I was quite worried at least about our prediction. We discussed whether to put it or no, <laughs> but but I'm happy that it turned out to be true because uh, in 2021 we, we predicted that there will be boycott of presidential presidential election, and and it happened. And so I'm quite happy about the results of that. Another thing that we have uh, we looked at the slogans, and one thing that that's not being discussed a lot about in, in the West is this rise of uh, slogans in defense of the Pahlavi family, uh, which is something that would really people in Washington, they don't like to talk about it. So as someone, as a Washington insider, why do you think that's the case? Uh, I'm, I'm definitely no Washington insider, no matter how <laughs> much time I've spent here. I don't know if that's uh, more my failure or the success of others, but I'm certainly no Washington insider. Um, but uh, I can do my best to guess or, or, or postulate an answer, uh, which is that, as you know, and as everyone knows, uh, you know, there's something of an allergy still in the foreign policy community, particularly in the mainstream foreign policy community to the Pat Levy last name. Uh, this is something of a nonpartisan allergy. It, you know, it's, it's my assessment. I have no real empirical evidence to back this up, but it's just something anecdotally I've experienced over the years that whether you fall on the left side of the spectrum or the right side, or you're more internationalist or isolationist, uh, many, though not all, many in the foreign policy community still see uh, the events of post-1979 as somehow based on events pre-1979. They have a familiar reading of things like 1953, for instance. Uh, and 
like many other places where the U.S. may or may not have intervened, they see the forces that the U.S. previously supported as somehow forever being illegitimate, coupled with, of course, a healthy distaste, uh, you know, within the American psyche for institutions like monarchy. Uh, you know, it creates a very kind of uh, toxic combination. And this toxic combination, actually, if you want to be an objective analyst, is unhelpful because it doesn't matter, you know, former administration officials meeting with other opposition groups. What matters is uh, what names, what persons, what entities are the people inside Iran chanting. We can't postulate who would be uh, the best, uh, you know, or one of, of, of the best representatives for a future you know, Iranian opposition one day without knowing what the Iranians inside Iran are actively saying uh, about those persons. Uh, and so I think there's been a, you know, a, a willingness to put blinders on uh, to uh, you know, some of the slogans that have been chanted about the Pahlavi dynasty, uh, really from 2017, 18 to present. You know, the, the Reza Shah, Ruhit Shah one, the Reza Shah, God bless your soul, uh, slogan is understood a little bit better uh, than the ones in favor of, uh, of, the, of the, the Crown Prince uh, Reza Pahlavi, uh, who lives in the United States. Um, but it's just, it's just my assessment that, you know, that kind of healthy distaste uh, in the U.S. for the monarchic institution, a shared reading of Cold War U.S. history of interventionism, um, coupled with a few other factors, create this allergy uh, towards that last name. And, you know, as you know better than I say, this allergy transfers outside of Iran to institutions like the monarchy in neighboring Afghanistan and the U.S. missteps there uh, in 2001, 2002 with trying to form a, a post-Taliban government. Yeah, it's very interesting because the distaste for the monarchy, because if you look at the region, like MENA region, so you have these monarchies who are working better for the people in general, on average, if you look at the numbers. And even more important uh, than that for the US, all of these monarchies are US allies. US worst enemies in the region, they are all republic. But every time there is a chance, you have the US foreign policy establishment, security establishment, they are trying to get rid of these monarchies. It, Quite, quite strange. It's very difficult for me to understand that. And it has really harmed the US national interest, I think. What do you think, Kamran? Do you think, I, I don't see the US as like actively trying to get rid of the monarchies, but I, but I see the sentiment where it has, it has a different approach. Uh, I wanna hear what Kamran has to say, because I wanna I, make something of general. I, I, have, to, I have to contradict, I think there, there are some institutional elements in what we see, for example, the distaste that many have in the U.S. for the Saudis. So there is a, it's not, it's not a government policy, but it definitely comes from whatever you want to call from the deep state or institutions, a push for get, getting rid of uh, the crown prince there for many reasons. I think part of it is that many of them really don't like monarchies. It, it could be that. The only caveat I would have to your helpful caveat is the you, that the, if, if you're controlling for that group that doesn't like an activist uh, uh, Arab leaders of the Persian Gulf policy, you know, like Saudi Arabia post-2012 and definitely Saudi Arabia post-2015, uh, they still like the monarchies in Morocco and Jordan. And so squaring the circle on that, 
you know, GCC versus non-GCC monarchy, but point taken. Yeah, as, as, as it relates to, to Iran, um, you know, I, I think that it, and, and Afghanistan, I, I think that interestingly, um, you know, you, 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 you said you've, you've talked about this before. Um, and I just, just to give a bit of color to what happened in Afghanistan, for those who, who aren't aware, um, when the U.S. Uh, overthrew the Taliban and came and came into uh, Afghanistan, um, the the lawyer Jirga, which was put together, which is sort of you know a, a parliament, if you will, you know the tribal elders, um, there was a, a straw poll done that seventy percent, uh, it was said, wanted the return uh, uh, of Zahir Shah, who was uh, for also about forty years, if I'm not mistaken, at least several decades. Uh, had been in exile in Rome, um, similar to a uh, situation we have now uh, for, for the Iranian monarchy. Um, and they looked, I think, these Afghanistan in many ways similar to Iran, uh, different um, tribal backgrounds, different toyefes, uh, as we would say in Persian, uh, uh, you know, ethnic backgrounds. Many of them looked to the person or the institution of the monarch or the monarchy as a stabilizing factor that could unite all of these forces. So I, I think probably some of the reservation that we see in the US foreign policy establishment um, comes from uh, supporting a reinstallation of a monarchy. So to Vietnam's point, um, most, it, it appears to me, in the American foreign policy establishment don't have a problem with, as he said, the Jordanian monarchy or, or the Moroccan monarchy. Uh, it's when it comes to a, reinst a reinstallation of course, at the choice of the people of that country of a monarchy, that it seems to come into question, because what happened then, uh, per the reports at the time, Zalmay uh, Khalilzad and others uh, inter interfered to prevent uh, the uh, assumption uh, or the reassumption of the throne by Zahir Shah, and they pushed forward their guy who was ah uh, Hamid Karzai. Um, so I, I think that a lot of Iranians, at least that I talk to Iranian Americans, worry about something similar happening uh, in the future. Um, and I think that if we look at where Afghanistan is today, um, you know, hindsight's 2020, and we can never say what would have happened or what wouldn't have happened with any degree of certainty had Zahir Shah reassumed the throne. Um, but I think there's a case to be made, certainly, that there would have been uh, at least one institution um, that all Afghans, or at least many Afghans, could have looked to as a stabilizing, unifying force, um, and one that was less subject to the just overwhelming corruption that we saw throughout the Afghan state, you know, even the military, which in other Middle Eastern countries, let's say Egypt, um, is often looked to as a force, you know, above uh, politics or above corruption. I mean, in Afghanistan, unfortunately, you had everything from the elected civilian government to the military, the civil service, the U many of the NGOs, they were all subject to just, you know, unimaginable um, corruption. So there's certainly a case to be made um, for that. But I, I think that the allergy exists. And it's, you know, it's not really surprising. America is a country born out of uh, an anti-monarchical uh, revolution. So it's not, it's not all that surprising. Although I will say there's a fascinating book. Uh, this is very off topic. I apologize by a professor of mine um, in undergrad um, that he recently is this, wrote. Is this a royalist revolution? Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I recommend it for everyone who wants so, to counter so tell us. So you're 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 our guest, but I've been talking too much. Tell us a bit, no, just just he, as a, he was a your professor. You should uh, you should a, a friend of mine who uh, I did uh, debate with uh, in DC a uh, long time ago, and we became friends. And he's in the Foreign Service 
uh, introduced me uh, to this book a few years back. But you know, he was your professor. I, I would love to know from you. Uh, well, I've only I've only read the thing. Well, just just uh, very just the Sparknotes version. You tell me because you've probably got further along in the book than I have, to be honest. It it, it posits that the the, the sort of um, conventional wisdom of the American Revolution was that it was um, a bunch of uh, American patriots who wanted to overthrow uh, the the monarchy and King George. Um, what this book posits is that actually, at, at least at the beginning of the American Revolution, it was, as the book title indicates, uh, a royalist revolution, and they were using their rights as British subjects to beseech the king, the monarch, uh, to interject and to defend, defend their rights as British citizens against what they viewed as an overactive parliament. Um, and so their view at the time was that it was really the parliament that was imposing these unfair taxes on them, and that as subjects of King George, they were beseeching uh, their monarch to fulfill one of his uh, obligations, which is to defend the rights of his citizens. So it's a really interesting take on uh, on what happened. And you know, certainly he has you know is a very thoughtful uh, fellow and has lots to to back it up. So, but but still, you know, e even aside from from that, what actually happened in the conventional American wisdom, our revolution was one that overthrew. Uh, a tyrannical monarch. And so it's, it's, you know, I think difficult for a lot of Americans to even conceive that what, what positive role a monarchy could play in a country like Afghanistan or, or potentially Iran. Just one last thing I'll say, though, this is, of course, in conflict with the American obsession with, you know, William and Kate, let's say, uh, or, or seemingly anything that happens with the British royal family. So it's almost like, you know, it's okay for me, but not for the uh, type of situation, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about the, you know, the, the William and Kate situation but, or, or any other, uh, you know, pop culture tracking of, of uh, the royals. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, the, the key word in, in what you were saying was parliament. You know, the, the one, of the, one of the pieces of the book is that the, uh, the people were revolting against the tyrannies of parliament, uh, if you will. You know, the, the parliamentary excesses, the Window Act, the Stamp Act, the, you know, the yep. whatever acts. Um, uh, that uh, attack the multiple uh, instances of taxation uh, that the, the people were, were protesting against. Yes, they wanted to create a drastically uh, a different kind of political uh, entity, um, but it, it, it does draw sharper cleavage uh, between those British institutions of monarchy and parliament yeah. uh, than mainstream American history textbooks uh, do provide. And this, again, not to ironically go back to my introduction, but this is where having a a history of situating, a, a ability to situate the present moment in larger history matters. Uh, America and America's founding story cannot be fully understood uh, unless you understand uh, English history, British history, uh, you know, the, the glorious revolution, the, the English civil war, literature like, you know, Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, uh, you know, how did some of the British monarchy become Germanic? Uh, you know, we have statesmen uh, inside the UK like William uh, Pitt, uh, for instance. Uh, it, it's, it's a fascinating yeah. <laughs> tangent to go down, uh, but, it's, but the, the lesson here is before we draw an analytical or a policy conclusion, let's situate the present moment in the proper historical context because nothing, whether religion, politics, language, culture, nothing on this earth is born out of a social vacuum. Nothing on this earth is born out of any kind of vacuum. Well, and let, let it let it not be forgotten that 
there were many people who wanted to call George Washington uh, His Majesty, and he, he refused uh, to allow it. But but getting back on onto uh, our topic of, of the Middle East and and Iran more specifically, the phrase you use of of, of setting current events in their proper historical context um, is is I think something often. Uh, ignored or forgotten when it comes to the Middle East uh, or Iran more broadly, whether it's, you know, 100 years ago and uh, the British uh, drawing a bunch of lines throughout the Middle East and, and creating these countries uh, to policy decisions that are made um, today uh, or, or claims about policy that are made today. And on the cusp of, of, of the conversation about your paper, which the Iranian people have very clearly moved from a point of discussing reform to much more clearly discussing revolution. I think to the three of us, it's clear that that policy conversation hasn't quite caught up in Washington, D.C. There are still many more people talking about reform in D.C. than there are in any part of Iran, um, obviously. But uh, the conversation has changed, you know, from three years ago, four years ago, five years ago. You do see, I think, people more openly talking about whether it's active regime change or simply the fact that, hey, whether we do anything or not, this regime may not exist down the road and as a matter of policy. Yeah, I, wanted, I want to give credit here to Benham uh, in the middle of your talking. So <laughs> Benham was well, actually, I think, the first person who invented the phrase maximum care and maximum support. I heard it. I heard maximum care for the first time from Benham. And Cameron and I wrote a, wrote a piece on why regime change or revolution is actually good, good for the United States, revolution in Iran, why it serves US national interest. And it doesn't seem that it will go anywhere in the Biden administration as long as the US is concerned. But there is a chance if Biden is a long-term president, you'll have a return of Republican administration, we will have a change in policy. And what do you think should that policy be for the US? And how you can, what, what's a good policy, both in terms of goal and in terms of tactic and implementation? Uh, so you're saying what's the ideal U.S.-Iran policy post-2024 if there is a change in party at the White House? That's the, that's the yes. condition? Yeah, I think right now the Republican administration is more likely to have a change of policy. Not that we are partisan here, but... No, but so it's the, the yeah. change is, uh, you know, Biden becomes one term and... Yeah, uh, let's say next, next U.S. president comes to Mr. Taleblu, Ben Taleblu, and says... What, what should they do? Uh, I'd say who else have you talked to first? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, so before we, we, we begin on this and, you know, uh, Cameron, by virtue of this being a podcast, I'm going to not ramble, but I'm going to go long a little bit. So, please, so stop please. me if it, if it is too long. Please do. Um, both you and I have somewhere to be today. <laughs> but... <laughs> but uh, you know, there are also concerns that what Said said, you know, the framing of what Said said may not happen. And again, I swear I'm not trying to bring the introduction back into this, uh, but the history into the, the present needs to be situated within the history. Um, there is, you know, there are also more isolationist, uh, you know, movements within, within the American right. And, you know, this is not a partisan statement, it's an objective statement. 
Um, uh, and those, at least on the right and on the left, seem to be the more ascendant wings. So it's in also entirely possible uh, that by virtue of where the Republican Party may be in 2024, uh, this discussion about a more holistic Iran policy is dampened. That's, that's you know, uh, you know, caveat number one. Caveat number two is the behavior of the Islamic Republic itself. Uh, you know, you know, Secretary, former Secretary Mattis uh, used to say, or like to say, the adversary gets a vote or the enemy gets a vote. Well, Iran's behavior is basically its vote here. Uh, and so what if in the interceding three-ish years before 2024, or before hypothetically in this scenario, a Republican administration comes in January 2025, what if Iran actually does get the bomb? Uh, by that time, whether through the failure of nuclear diplomacy or whether through uh, the perception uh, of sanctions relief or whether through the perception uh, that the US doesn't have the back of its traditional partners in the region and those traditional partners don't feel comfortable with any kind of military pressure against the Islamic Republic and US posture and US partner posture becomes more accommodationist than adversarial towards a, a nuclear Iran. In that scenario, it's also possible uh, that a Republican president in 2025 scales back the already scaled back uh, Iran policy and does a very, very, very con containment light kind of approach. It wouldn't transform into a Pakistan type of scenario because, you know, Pakistan's military, Pakistan's leaders uh, have made, uh, <laughs> even though, you know, many uh, in Pakistan do continue to support uh, designated terror groups. Uh, they, they have played the political game very differently, where I don't think that would be Khamenei's political game, and I don't think that would be the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps' political game. I think, you know, with the bomb, they would uh, act worse, not differently. They wouldn't even moderate their rhetoric, let alone moderating uh, their behavior. So the fear then is uh, that the U.S. could become defeatist, regardless of the political party uh, at the helm. And if the Pakistan model is not one, then the North Korea one may be one, where I think recently the Biden administration criticized the UN uh, uh, on sanctions regime implementation, whereas actually the Biden administration is really, I think, uh, missing an action on North Korea nuclear policy at the moment. And that seems to be because they're, they're deterred by all the failures of dealing with a nuclear capable and then a nuclear uh, possessing North Korea, whether that's the collapse of the agreed framework uh, or things like North Korea testing ICBMs, uh, the fire and fury situation that exists with Donald Trump, uh, or afterwards the high-level summit diplomacy and the North Korea testing shorter range and increasingly longer range systems again, um, they're you know, taken aback by the whole slew of failures. Uh, and so there seems to be a more minimalist approach. So it's entirely possible that you have uh, a more minimalist approach. So that could be driven by situation A, different ideology within the Republican Party about foreign policy, situation B, uh, Iran actually getting the nuke and that eliciting a change uh, in American foreign policy. But what I would do uh, is actually recommend a, a, uh, a, you know, a, a hybrid version uh, or I would recommend a hybrid uh, strategy that the US had towards the Soviet Union, something between containment and rollback. You know, you need to situate a rollback policy of the Islamic Republic in the heartland of the Middle East, uh, but you need to do that in a way that is sustainable, financially sustainable, politically sustainable, uh, and secure. And also, you don't end up empowering people that are or, or could be worse or equally as bad as the Islamic Republic. Um, so that that is something to keep in mind. But the the goal, the policy I would recommend, is something between containment and rollback. 
uh, it would be a little bit more vigorous uh, in the region with respect to the military posture. The real, the secret sauce, I think, towards pushing back on the Islamic Republic uh, before we get to things like, you know, support for the Iranian people internally, uh, the secret sauce is actually that gray zone competition. Uh, you know, it's not just talking about the, the threat. It's not, you know, you have to make every decision as a, do you go to war or not threat? It's actually, how do you compete in the middle? And that is everything from sanctions, cyber, sabotage, democracy promotion, uh, you, know, you know, graduated kinetic escalation, uh, depending on the theater, depending on the actor. Uh, so for instance, the Biden administration just recently did uh, sanctions against the Islamic Republic's drone industry. This seems to be the US response to a drone attack on one of its garrisons in southeastern Syria. Um, you know, that is a de minimis approach that I think good gray zone competition uh, would take. Because if you don't end up deterring Iran in the gray zone, if you don't end up contesting Iran in the gray zone, if you don't end up trying to push back on Iran in the region, uh, then you end up sending the worst signals on other things. So that it means that on the nuclear file, it can do whatever it wants to do. And at home, it has a freer hand and more resources to do whatever it wants to do. And basically, the unfortunate paradigm you see with the Islamic Republic is aggression abroad and repression at home. Those things tend to go hand in hand. Um, and in this sense, Washington, if we're going to you know, politely hit <laughs> the foreign policy elite here, uh, did not pay attention to, I think, a gem uh, former Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif gave in his you know, leaked audio recording his multiple hours <laughs> to, uh, of uh, Q&A that, that was leaked earlier in the spring of 2021. Uh, and in that, you know, there was a line that was very well translated and made the rounds, but people didn't, again, internalize that and situate that within what's going on. Zarif said that he was complaining about the Revolutionary Guard Corps, that Iran has, uh, or that the regime has sacrifice diplomacy at the altar of the Maidan, at the altar of the battlefield. Um, and so this, this, you know, people read this really within the factional prism, you know, Zarif versus the IRGC, Rouhani versus the IRGC, clerics versus, clerics versus the IRGC, moderates versus hardline, that, that kind of uh, prism. But actually this needs to be looked at through the foreign policy and strategic competition lens. Meaning if you have an adversary where even people inside the regime are admitting that the adversary is putting all its eggs in this one basket, the Maidan, the region, the battlefield. If you are opposing that adversary, Allah, another you know, military theorist up here, you concentrate your forces at that center of gravity. You should actually be doing everything you can against that adversary in this place, in the Maidan. If you want to have a counter-Islamic policy, counter-Islamic Republic policy, it begins in the region. A future administration, Republican or Democrat, that has a tough policy on Iran, perhaps just you know, super beefed up sanctions, but is missing an action in the region, will end up replicating the failures of the past. Uh, and this is, this is a de minimis uh, approach, I think for a Republican president in 2024. Uh, another is don't miss an opportunity. Uh, you know, opportunities presented to you by potentially more protests on the street in Iran, uh, you know, potentially- I just to want actually... to say something about your last point. And huh? this is something that the Trump administration really didn't, didn't do, except maybe in the case of Soleimani, that was the big one. But beyond that, they really didn't push back. 
So I think that that was one of their biggest mistake. Yeah, I, th I think you know, with people read the, the the years of maximum pressure wrongly. I, I totally agree, and, I, and I'm bless you both for the, the footnote on maximum care or maximum support. Uh, as much as we all agreed with, in principle, uh, the maximum pressure policy, you know, we were all able to identify. Perhaps we all didn't use the same words, maximum care or maximum support, but we were all able to identify that hey, those twelve points don't have a domestic Iranian component, don't have a human rights component, don't have a democracy promotion component, are totally divorced from the historical context of as long as there's been an Islamic Republic, there have been massive protests against that Islamic Republic. And that is not featured really uh, into the logic uh, of, uh, of, the, of the 12 point policy that was supposed to be the aims of maximum pressure. But to your point about the administration not having a foreign and security policy, I think it did comparatively better uh, than that which it received, um, but you know, also the the bar for a response was rather high. So you know, Trump's red line in places like Iraq uh, was rather clear. Uh, you know, that's both good and bad. It's good in the sense that you don't get dragged into needless conflicts, but it's bad in the sense that if you have a very high red line, and Trump's red line was the the, the killing of an American, the loss of life, uh, you you basically give a green light to the proxies. To do everything just short of that red line, uh, and you know some of the work I did in 2020 was detailing and giving sourcing to every single rocket, mortar, and drone attack by Shia militia groups in Iraq against uh, the constellation of U.S. facilities or, or sites associated with the U.S. force presence in Iraq. Well, 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 not so, and sorry to interrupt, Ben, but not not only that, but just to, to your point of the red line, if if it's so, if the red line is so high, if the bar is so high for American involvement or an American response, isn't isn't it the case that Let's let's say the example of Iraq, where it was the the, the killing of, of American soldiers, the loss of American life. If it's that high, uh, and you allow the regime, as you say, to do everything up until that line, and just you know inch right up to it, you allow the proxies, as I think we saw in Iraq, to gain such a foothold and 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 take effectively control of that country, such that if if and when they decide to cross that red line they are at such an emboldened and empowered state that now the uh the, the cost to america of enforcing that red line is now much higher because it's not it's oh, not just sure. responding to something it's it's you're responding to a, a significantly empowered enemy isn't that right oh for, yeah for, for for sure uh you know there's a a, a former colleague uh, Said and i have whose name we won't mention but routinely i would say to him and he would agree that, uh, you know, again, regardless of party, uh, America needs an Iraq policy and it needs an Iraq policy that is more than just two things because I am unable under Trump and under Obama and definitely un under Biden to discern an Iraq policy uh, that is more than just a counter ISIS policy uh, or a counter Iran policy. Uh, if you're going to win in the Maidan, you need a policy for each Maidan. You need a Yemen policy. You need a Syria policy. You need a Lebanon policy. You even need a Bahrain policy. Uh, you need these policies. Uh, and they are either appropriated to under the counterterrorism uh, rubric or which, you know, is increasingly being pushed away. Uh, given the, the interest in great power competition. And, and I, I do agree that states are the main threats, but it doesn't mean that you need to have an all or nothing approach. And B, uh, if it is the state approach, which is, it's again, the, the perverse of the, the inverse of the all or nothing, they go all in and they only see these 
individual countries through the Iran prism, and that can be detrimental to you in the medium or long term. So one thing, and this is sort of where I was going before, before we got into this, which I'm, I'm glad we did because that was that was very helpful, is when we when we as Americans or when policymakers, as as Said said, uh, DC insiders like yourself, Ben, um, although you would never uh, make this mistake. Um, also what, not what, an insider. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, people of, of the deep state like you, um, when we when we look at 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 policy, especially when it comes to Iran, as, as you put, you gave one example, which is we look at the Islamic Republic denying the context of 42 years of popular protest against the regime, especially clear in the last five years, as you all outlined in your piece. One of the other ways it appears to me um, that we do it, and and something that concerns me uh, a lot, and I know concerns a lot of people inside Iran and, and Iranian Americans here, is that the U.S. may uh, make another mistake policy-wise, and that is, if if the argument that you all make in your piece, bec- you know, becomes more accepted that Iran is in a pre-revolutionary state, possibly revolutionary state, uh, the argument that Said and I made in our piece that okay, uh, such a change would be beneficial to the United States. Naturally, some policymakers start to think, okay, how can we do that? And and we'll get back to you on on what your ideal solution would be. Certainly, I have my views, and I think you know, obviously Said does as well, but. One thing that I, I sort of hear a few more whispers of, sometimes whispers, sometimes people just come out and say it, is talking about what we would refer to as, as ethnic separatism or secessionism in Iran. You saw some of this in Iraq, but just to give a 30-second blip on what this is for our listeners who, who aren't familiar, Iran is a very diverse country, obviously, um, and it, it you know, has a unifying language of Persian, and you probably many people know it for, you know, the Persian language. Um, but for thousands of years under the Persian Empire, there were uh, different uh, tribes like the Lors and Bakhtiaris. We have uh, different um, uh, ethnic groups, uh, be they Azaris or, or, or Kurds or Iranian Arabs. Um, I just want to correct something. It please. hasn't been Persian Empire for like uh, a long time. Like it has been Persian Empire at the beginning, then you have the Parthian, and then you have the Sasanian, or what it's called, Sasanid, if, if I'm pronouncing it correct, correctly. And at that time, definitely, you had it as Iran, like you had it as Iran Shah. So, it, mm-hmm. so this Persian thing, it's something that comes from the from Westerners. Yeah, so from Alexander know, the Great. Yeah, they know us as right. Persian. Yeah. It has been Iran for a long time. So yeah, no, no, you're, you're exactly right. And that's, that's sort of the point I'm making, which is in, in the Western convention, it's the Persian Empire. Um, and for Iranians, however, in domestic or internal Iranian affairs, Iran has, has always been the name. Uh, and it has always been, uh, you know, a very diverse uh, nation state, Iran Shah, you use, you know, the Persian name, but, you know, broader Iran. And it's always been, you know, not just people of the Persian language or Persian ethnicity, but a very diverse um, set of, of, of people, um, which, which are colloquially and collectively in the West referred to as Persians of the Persian Empire, which is not true, but that's the convention. But to the policy, I think some people look at that, Behnam, and tell me if I'm wrong, look at that and say, okay, if we want to weaken the regime, let's in some way try to empower or promote these groups who uh, some of them may want to break away from Iran, like going back to this secessionist or separatism. 
I think Iranians are by and large opposed to that. Um, can, can you just describe how you see this? I mean, what is, you know, talk about it from an Iranian perspective inside the country, and then we'll get to it from a, a U.S. policy perspective and, and what you think, whether it's good or bad. But can you just give it, give us your... Before your... Behnam gives it to us, because I have been you know, born and raised in Iran. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so sometimes people call me like Persian fascist or something like that. <laughs> so I was born in Mazandaran. Mm -hmm. My parents were born and raised in Mazandaran. Like my whole family had been living there for a long time. So as long as, you know, we can trace it back. And it's very interesting to me that because I say I don't, I, I'm, I'm against uh, separatism in Iran, they assume that I'm a Persian, which I don't know what it is exactly because Persian seems to be whatever it's not the other uh, ethnic minorities that they identify, or people who whose mother tongue is Persian. So I dif difficult to define it, but I'm not that. Whatever that is, I'm not that. And I have like I have spent most of my childhood uh, during the summer in Mazandaran, not even in the city, in the countryside. And many of the things that these like experts or these separatist elites are saying, I haven't seen that. It's not that I lived all my life in Tehran and I didn't see that. Again, I'm coming from that family background, spend time there. Actually, I lived outside Tehran for a long time before going to Tehran. And many of the things that they are saying it's not just true, like in, in my lived experience, it's not true. And another thing from my family background, so we are what you can what you can call pure Mazandarani until this generation, until last generation. You 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 messed up the trend. You went to Tehran. Yeah. And my so my three aunts, they are married to uh, my now uncles, three Turk coming from other family or Turk or whatever you want to call it. So Iran is not like, you know, this like people separated by their ethnic origin. It's a very mixed one. Of mm -hmm. course, when you go to like, you know, you go to countryside, like in Azerbaijan or in Mazandaran, you have like what they call it, like the pure, uh, <clears throat> ethnic purity, but it's very mixed as, and it, it becomes more, it has become more and more mixed as you have like the rate of uh, urban population has gone up. So cities are generally where you have like this uh, mixation. So the, the pictures that many of these, again, separatist elites or some of these experts are giving it's really, the, I think it's, it, it doesn't reflect the reality of Iran. And, and, and that's, how, that's how I want to pose it to you, Benham, is because I think, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, this fits in with your theme of some Western policymakers who may support some secessionist movements like this are trying to solve what they view as their short-term problem, but they're doing so in a way that at least to me, and, and, I, and based on what Said said to Said lacks the broader historical context what do you think yeah so that 
That that seems to be part of the case, but let me just zoom out, you know, 5,000%. I also, I, I realized because we did have many tangents, I'm going to, uh, you know, invite myself to another Nufti podcast to do the, you know, <laughs> what, what should, <laughs> what should uh, you know, future U.S. policy be for Iran, you know, domestically. Yes. Uh, we actually didn't get to talk about, we talked about the maximum pressure abroad, you know, we talked very detail about the theaters, but not in detail about the domestic component. Um, so let's let's put a pin in that conversation. And, yeah, and we'll we, we'll come back. We'll have you we, back. We, we can return to that um, because that is, that is a very rich discussion. But I know that this is our actual main topic today. Um, listen, I want I want to begin with that history because, and I think Saeed's picking a part of that language uh, is is very key because this is actually where the whole house falls apart. Um, you, you look at the country that we call Iran today. Uh, you know, the government's name is the Islamic Republic of Iran, but that entity, that geographic entity, we know that the boundaries of it, you know, Persian Gulf, Caspian Sea, Iraq, Afghanistan, we know that entity as Iran. Uh, that entity on paper, on the map today, is smaller, actually, than uh, it has been. So when you talk about, uh, you know, for instance, I think you made the joke uh, in, in the earlier part of your intro about the British or... Or, or, or different Western powers drawing, you know, arbitrary lines. Uh, those lines, and by virtue of several Iranian successive defeats uh, in, in the past few centuries, uh, are what account uh, for the smaller, not larger, uh, scale uh, and scope of the entity that we call Iran today. The next is that the, the Persian label that you know Said, you know, rightly took umbrage with. Uh, you know, Persian was often something. Uh, not exclusively uh, abroad, but mostly something that people looking from the outside in. Yes, there were people uh, from within uh, who would use that, who would use the term, you know, Persian. Um, but mostly, it's, it was an outside-in term, and, it, and it's really a response to the Achaemenid dynasty. Uh, you know, 535 is like the first major dynasty. It's often treated as the first, uh, you know, uh, Persian Empire, uh, but also it's it's part and parcel of this larger. Uh, Iranian monarchic tradition. You know, uh, until then, you had the Medes uh, in northwest Iran, and even before then, you had a lot of other uh, different, uh, you know, uh, political entities, empires. You could call them the Elamites, for instance, and they were actually Semitic. We believe uh, the, the the Medes and the Persians were Indo-European, and thus you have from the 700s BC up until you know present the Indo-European uh, ascendancy. Um, but that ascendancy is actually challenged because when you try to apply the term Persian in an ethnic sense to most Iranian successive empires, uh, you can't really do that after the Arab invasion of Iran. You know, you have definitely uh, major different Iranian secessionist, uh, you know, anti-Arab uh, anti revolts happening. In fact, that's how part of the Abbasid uh, dynasty got started. But you have the Umayyads, the Abbasids basically Arabo-Islamic centric. Uh, you had several other in, in Central Asia and South Asia breakaway uh, kingdoms and empires. You had many fractious periods, uh, but basically for about 900 years up until the, the Pahlavi dynasty, uh, you have a, a, a Turco-Mongolian kind of ascendancy, but most Iranian leaders uh, were actually Turkic. You know, Ferdowsi's Shahnameh, which I have an English copy of up, uh, up here, um, you know, was written, uh, you know, he's talking about Basi Range, Bordam Dalin, Saw the Sea. 
Ajab Zindikarda. You know, everyone knows that that uh, that that poem about resurrecting the Persian language, uh, but actually, it was ended up being a gift to a Turkic sultan. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Ghaznavid Empire, you know, located uh, in you know larger Khorasan than uh, larger Khorasan than modern day Afghanistan today. Uh, there is a Persianate world. The term Persianate you can use to apply to architecture, architecture in India, architecture in Uzbekistan. Uh, there is the term Iranian or Iranic you could use to apply to traditions, traditions like Nowruz that you can find among the Kurdish people. Kurdish is actually an Indo-European language. There are many, 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 many ways to unpack this. Um, and I think the, 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 the hyper-focus on this, this Persian one is pejorative, it is political, and it is divorced from this larger understanding. And the big thesis of this larger understanding is that whatever ethnic background these leaders were in, what were leaders of, of that entity that we called Iran, they were cognizant that the, the polity that they ruled over was to borrow a phrase from this U Chicago professor up here who talked about the dynasty site mentioned, that the, the Sassanid dynasty, the last major dynasty before that uh, Arab invasion of Iran uh, was a state of mixture. You know, he's talking about uh, Christianity uh, in Sassanid Iran, but nonetheless, these Iranian leaders knew that their state was a state of mixture. And it's about balancing these things. And in the modern era where you get the development of the nation state, nation states have what we call a national culture. America has a national culture. Israel has a national culture. India has a national culture. Japan has a national culture. Hungary has a national culture. Uh, these national cultures, particularly even in the US today, are vigorously debated by its component parts. Uh, but nonetheless, there is a contest over what best defines that national culture. And I think when we're moving into this discussion, and I promise this is the last, <laughs> this is the last historical thing I want to say, is we should be cognizant of all those component parts that may not ethnically be reflective of that national culture, but socially and civically and politically are. You look at the history of the Constitutional Revolution, many of the outsized uh, thinkers came from the, you know, the two Iranian provinces of Azerbaijan. Um, one of the you know, most interesting histories of the Azeri language comes from uh, Sayyid Ahmad Kasravi Tabrizi. Uh, you know, th th these things are not alien to Iran's national history, are not alien to understanding Iranians or Persians, as some would like to say. They are part and parcel of it. One of the most amazing, interesting things to reflect and respect the mixture uh, that existed is to remember that, you know, there are many, many, many minorities in the Middle East today are under pressure. And most unfortunately, many of our uh, minority uh, ethnic and religious minority friends are under pressure today inside the Islamic Republic of Iran. There are discriminatory policies and practices. No one is going to deny that necessarily. We can have a debate about that. But that when we look to the constitutional revolution, for instance, something to remember, and I believe his role was this site, or Kamran, correct me if I get the role wrong, but after the ascendance of some of the nationalist forces, the constitutionalist forces, there was an Armenian uh, military official Yeprem Khana Armani, and this guy became the head of the Tehran police. Imagine a Christian and an ethnic, a religious and an ethnic minority becoming the head of the police of the capital of a Muslim Middle Eastern nation a century ago. You know, Iran has this rich diversity. When we talk about this, 
the Islamic Republic continues many of the centralizing themes that you see in Iran of the 20th century, which is the expanse of central authority in Iran. But other than that, it has sparked debates that are really in many ways alien to this rich legacy, this rich, diverse history. Um, so this is the, you know, I wanted to get this historical anecdote off my chest to right size these debates about Persian and Iranian um, before we begin. Um, and I, so I, now, want to, I want to add something because, so they uh, portray Pahlavi as the initiator of the first person Persianification in Iran. And you look at the Pahlavi family, <laughs> this is a family from Mazandaran yep. with uh, input from Azerbaijan and Caucasus. So this is not a Persian family. And if you look at the leaders of the Islamic Republic, so you have like, you have Azeris who have a prominent role, Mir Hussein Musabi himself, you know, prime minister. Khamenei, Khamenei is a city in uh, Azerbaijan, if I'm not wrong. Uh, you have people from Arab descent, you have people from uh, Gilan, Mazandaran, uh, Kurdistan, Bijan Zanganer, the long term, long time oil minister. So it's not like that you have like these Persians who are running the, the country and they're oppressing everyone else. And you see this in like the describing uh, the regime's foreign policy, which the many Westerners and pe people in the region, especially Arab commentators, they are calling it Persian Empire. The Islamic Republic is expanding the Persian Empire, which is for the Arab governments of the region. I understand it. It's much more easier for them if they, you know, describe it as a Persian Empire. But if you, in reality, what you have, like you have the Shia in Lebanon, you have the Shia population in Yemen, you have the Shia population in Syria, you have the Shia population in Iraq, which are Arabs. And they're working with the regime to expand this Shia empire, not Persian empire. And for Westerners, I think it really goes back to Herodotus because they like to call this Persian empire. And it really leads to bad policy. If you, if you don't understand the problem, then your response to the problem would be bad in the regional context. And in the domestic context, again, as I, as I said, you have, you have this problem that the Islamic Republic is being described as a government ruled by Persian for Persians. That's not true. Uh, the rulers are not Persian in exclusively and they are not you know they are not uh, pushing per persian policy last uh last thing before we get into the present policy but i swear this is the last historical no thing. please please where it's, <laughs> it's just that i actually find some of this stuff more interesting i know we're here to talk present policy but again with that you know that childlike interest still in history uh, in me that is still bewildered and fascinated um, uh, by uh, this shared history uh, is the way that in many times in the past half millennia from basically the Safavid empire on down, 
that when there is a collapse in central authority, and this, you know, you have to give the proto supporters of secession and a little, little bit of intellectual credit here because this is where they get this. When there is a collapse in central authority, there is a rise in peripheral authority. But this is the case everywhere. It become, the margins become ascendants when you have a collapse in the center. Uh, you know, you have a, a capital collapse where you're going to have breakaways, you're going to have competing interpretations of who is the legitimate heir, who is the legitimate rival, and competition within those camps. Um, but really, looking at some of the historical correspondences uh, by, you know, Turkic uh, leaders, by ethnic Turkmen leaders, uh, by Azeri speaking, and Lors as well, you know, you have the, the Zand, you have, the, of course, the Afghan invasion of Iran, we should not forget that. Um, after the Safavid Empire that causes the, the decline and fall of the Safavid Empire. But uh, you have basically like the, this different competition. And one of the, one of the terms that is, is very interesting that is used when like different princes, Zan dynasty princes, uh, uh, you know, writing letters to Afsharid princes, later on uh, Ajar princes, um, there is this term, Varese Mulkikian, the inheritor um, I'm just doing a rough translation, the inheritor of the, the royal land or the regal realm. Here's these people, you know, <laughs> these different groups, none of them match that, you know, ethnic Persian group, but they are fighting over this shared term, the inheritor of the regal realm, the legacy of the regal realm. Here's these people, you know, Nader Shah by many <laughs> accounts, not even speak good Persian, uh, but here are these people, uh, descendant from him or around him that are fighting with other ethnic minorities for this title. This is the history uh, of this entity. This is the continuity, different ethnic minorities that have come and chosen to live in and lead uh, Iran. This is the legacy they choose to invoke. So if you look at, you know, the last Shah of Iran, Muhammad Reza Pahlavi at the tomb of Cyrus uh, uh, the Great, you may say, okay, this is some perso-centric, uh, perso persophilia moment, but you cannot divorce different leaders in the past from coming to draw on the legacy of the empires that have come before and the, the rich tapestry of peoples that have lived there. You know, Fath Ali Shah, the Qajar, uh, second Qajar king, has these, uh, you know, I've, I've never had the pleasure of driving by their site, you probably have, these rock inscriptions. Uh, in mountainsides in Iran, which basically mirror, and they're like hunting scenes. They basically mirror the rock inscriptions in places like Bostan in Iran, where you have Sassanid kings, either having like crowning ceremonies, being divinely anointed, or also engaging in hunting scenes or warlike scenes. They're mirroring each other. They're cognizant of this history. So uh, when we get into this context about politics, let's just be cognizant that the people who actually live in Iran, who may fall into these categories of Persian or non-Persian, uh, are also cognizant of this history and they are the inheritors of this legacy. Uh, so that I think, you know, me as an Iranian American living uh, outside here, uh, Saeed is someone who has moved uh, and, and, and many others. This is something that, you know, first we, look to and listen and learn from them. And, and this is the shared history. So onto, onto present policy. Uh, 
you know, many see the, this ethnic issue as something that's basically a shiv, right? A vector for pressure against the Islamic Republic. If the official language of Iran is Persian, if people talk about the Persian empire, uh, then of course, perhaps there is often opposition to that which is official. There is plenty of opposition to that which is official. There's a, the religion of Iran is 12 Rishism, the official religion, there's plenty of opposition to that. There is opposition to everything inside Iran that is a tool for pressure by the state against the people. That is a broad thing we can agree on. Um, but beyond that, many of the fights that you have are center periphery fights, and many of the fights that people are looking to try to put a finger on, and I don't think this is broadly Western policy, but it's a view some Western analysts hold. It's a view very, very, very select Western policymakers hold, but the fear is that it could become an ascendant view that you know, we don't have a proper counter Islamic Republic of Iran policy, but hey, it looks like there are some freedom fighters here or here. It looks like the freedom fighters there. Or, hey, it looks like this state is kind of like a South African kind of state. Or, hey, it looks like this state is not really a state, it's really an empire. And, you know, we're in the counter-imperial business anyway. And as we're looking, as the U.S., this is the generic framing, as the U.S. is looking to get out of the region, why not have its strategy and its morals come together and empower those people who could become pro-American uh, or are pro-American by virtue of them being anti-regime? And the regime, in this case, they don't define as an Islamist autocracy. They define it as some kind of weird Persian fascist thing. Uh, <laughs> and this is, this is the framing. This is the ideology of those uh, who would be inclined to, from abroad, but, support separatism. Just, just so give them about... their best case. This is their best case argument, that we don't have a counter-Iran policy that's proper. We believe there to be ethnic minorities. We believe the ethnic issue to be a state-centric thing that people are putting down. And we want to push back on it. And we want to push back on it cheaply and effectively and in a way that marries our strategy and our values. Which and in this case, they borrow from the Soviet Union. Ben, so this, ben, um, this is their argument in, in bright lights. But, but before you get into, I think that you're exact, before you get into why, just to, to pick it on, point on one thing you said and Said said, how any policymaker could look at the leaders of the Islamic Republic, whether it's Ali Khamenei, uh, the Guardian Council, any of these groups, I mean, nine out of 10 clerics, look at these people sitting around in clerical garb, clearly, you know, people like, uh, you know, uh, perhaps prefer to, to read the, uh, the Quran in, in Arabic uh, than, you know, speak in, in proper Persian like Khomeini and say these people uh, are forcing a, a Persianate policy is beyond me. But in, in any case, to, back to your, I, I just want to point out what's, what seems so absurd to that about me, uh, what, what seems so absurd to me uh, about that view that, that these people who are so clearly anti-Iranian uh, in so many ways um, are, are described as enforcing a quote-unquote fascistic Persian, Persianate or, or Persian-focused policy. It just seems to me to be quite absurd, um, but so, sorry for interrupting you. No, no, that, that's okay. So, but this is, what I was saying was this is, before we, you know, criticize a view, we have to put the view in bright light. So this is their view. Um, now to, to kind of be, begin the, the criticism. One, for instance, this view uh, of, you know, being able to tap into or support, uh, you know, the breakup of Iran uh, as a counter Islamic Republic of Iran policy is by definition, a self-defeating move because the government of the Islamic Republic of Iran, as empirical evidence shows the past four decades, is not in the business of actually bolstering Iran. 
the government of the Islamic Republic's interest is drastically different than that of the interests of the state, the entity, the public good of what you could say is the Iranian national interest. You know, the intervention in Syria, I, I, I forget who said this, but it was, it was a line in 2013 about trading Khuzestan for Syria. That is better to keep Syria and lose Khuzestan. Yeah. Um, when you talk about what wanting to improve the welfare uh, of all people uh, inside Iran, I'll never forget this line that later on, I think even he realized uh, how, how bad this line was. Uh, he came to try to walk it back or say the press took it out of context, but it was Velayati's line uh, that the Iranian people, and this is a, you know, at the peak of max pressure, that the Iranian people should learn from the people of Yemen who have only a dry piece of bread and like no clothing and they look, they're still resisting. This is what the leaders of the Islamic Republic of Iran have in mind. They're not interested in the common good, the welfare, the national interest of the country, the public good of the people. They're interested in maintaining this Islamist revolutionary autocracy and they're interested in expanding it whenever they're not maintaining it. That accounts for the adventurism abroad. Uh, it doesn't account for the way they're necessarily doing this business at home. And I, and I, 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 just I also want to add something. So if you look at like the regional policy where they go for intervention, it's in the Shia regions. Like they had the options, surely after the fall of the Soviet Union or after the civil war in Afghanistan to really invest there. They didn't do that. They, they, where they go is in like Syria, which has been out of the Persian Empire realm for a long time, or Yemen, Iraq, Lebanon. These are like places with Shia population. Again, like you see this, that this is not, this is not a government whose main issue is, you know, the expansion of Persian Empire. Its main issue is the expansion of the Shia Empire in the region. Yeah, it, it, need, it needs a constituency uh, and that, you know, the, the sectarian one is the easiest constituency for them to find. Uh, it's not the only one, but it's, 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 the, it's the easiest one. Yeah, let me tell um, you a funny story. So in, the, in Tajikistan, after the fall of the Soviet Union, so they came to Iran, Iranian, Iranian government, the Islamist regime, and asked them, okay, we need like some books, we, we want to revive the Persian language there. And they sent them books and they return them back because all the books were apparently about Shiism. So they were <laughs> through these books, they were trying to, you know, <laughs> to turn them into Shia. And so that that's really a good story about what drives them. Yeah, I mean Iran also didn't invest heavily in the in the the non-Arab space for that that cultural uh, kind of diplomacy. And, and really one country that did and really beat Iran in that was Turkey. Uh, Turkey was able to kind of use that the, kind of the pan-Turkic banner, even in places where there wasn't a national constituency like Tajikistan versus the other Central Asian uh, republics where there, where there would be. Um, but that, that was really a shortcoming, uh, <laughs> one of the many shortcomings of the Islamic Republic's diplomacy. Uh, you know, looking at Tajikistan and not knowing that these guys extol the Samanids <laughs> and, and instead of, you know, the Shiism. It's really related to their domestic policy because if they decide to you know, expand this Persian empire going back to lands which have been historically Iranians. Like on the east and on the north, 
these are like the lands which for uh, centuries, if not thousands of years, these have, these, have, these have been inhabited by Iranian people. And if they want to go to, to that direction, then it's really in conflict with, with their ideology, which is a Shiite ideology. Because you cannot go outside and try to expand the Persian empire. And then you go inside and say, no, this Persian empire was not a good thing. It's very good that uh, uh, Islam invaded Iran, or Arabs invaded Iran, brought Islam. So that's like, you know, that's the conflict that they have. And it's not a surprise that they are going to West because that's where you have the Shiites. Not, not in the east and not in the northeast part of the country. It, 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 it's, it's not surprising. What, what is, though, surprising about this is that this, and this sort of goes back to the thing I said about how anyone could look at the leadership of the Islamic Republic, just at literally judge a book by its cover and say these people are having some sort of Persianate policy. Um, when, when, you, when one puts it in the context of the actual policy that they have followed and where they have chosen to expand, that it's really a Shia empire they're looking to uh, create uh, or uh, more of a caliphate than an empire, than a Persian empire. What's shocking is how some in the West can uh, draw the conclusion uh, that the Islamic Republic has this, this policy and therefore to weaken it, one must su uh, support, and I, and I really like the phrase you use, say, the separatist elite, because it, it's my analysis that even the, the ethnic minorities in Iran, and as you say, it's, it's very important to emphasize the issue in, the, in of itself is overblown. Nobody really knows. You know, you have in one apartment building in Iran, Kurds and Lors and Mozandaronis and Turks and Azeris and Arabs, everyone's living together. It's not as if the country is, is divided or segregated as much in that sense. It, it strikes me that it is really this separatist elite that you refer to that is pushing this idea of secessionism and separatism as opposed to the broad base of population even even amongst iran's ethnic minority communities um but but ben i, I want to go back to you from a, from a policy perspective which you were getting into you know i think that the first point you're making is look if you want to weaken uh you know this threat then you know the islamic republic is your best bet because it is itself focused on on weakening iran Yes, so the, the, if we take that, that framing that you need a counter Islamic Republic policy, uh, you know, step one of, the, of, of, of this thinking would say, okay, you need to have a break up Iran policy or a counter Iran policy. And no one is denying that that is not going to cause headaches uh, for the Islamic Republic, but we're saying that the negative, you know, strictly, you know, amoral, strictly that that is actually going to redound to your uh, deficit later on uh, as a policymaker, because it will necessarily do things for you uh, that uh, you are looking to actively avoid, such as it may actually draw you back into a conflict. One example uh, is, of course, if you look at the way this issue happened before with Stalin and uh, the, the early part of the Cold War, you know, there were, uh, th th there were attempts, both for Azerbaijan and Iranian Kurdistan, to be backed by, when Saeed's term of a uh, of a separatist elite is correct, uh, you know, a, a foreign kind of communist international supported uh, elite in both uh, of these two areas. And ultimately, uh, once Soviet troops withdrew, these places fell. In fact, some of the earliest cases of the UN Security Council uh, are America siding with the government of Iran 
uh, against you know getting Soviet troops after the end of World War II out of uh, occupied territories uh, inside Iran. And so when the Soviet Union was leaving or trying to leave or after it left, it tried to erect these things to kind of make a Swiss cheese policy out of Iran. But ultimately, with the support uh, of the US and ultimately the support of the local populations versus the kind of foreign supported separatist elite, uh, these attempts to make Iran into some kind of Swiss cheese confederacy uh, failed. And so the first thing, uh, the first kind of strike against this view of, you know, if you're going to be anti-Islamic Republic, then you need to be anti-Iran, is to say, hey, look at some of the more recent attempts uh, to make this kind of Swiss cheese confederacy, and they failed. And in fact, they failed because those elites did not actually have grassroots support. So this is message number one. Uh, number two uh, is actually, uh, and again, this is to put the, that argument in its best light, is to say that in the era where the Islamic Republic is actually shoving official religion down everyone's throats, uh, people are actually turning to their ethnic uh, identity as a way to push back on the regime's Islamist overlay of everything. Uh, this is true on the micro level by people having you know, less uh, historically Arab names and more historically Persian names. Uh, uh, this is just you know, a small anecdotal. Uh, but also for the you know the the major non-Persian ethnic groups in Iran, Azeri, you know, Kord, Lor, Badush, you know, we can get into each one. Uh, it also means that embracing that non-Persian ethnic identity more. And in this sense, there is a credence to what some of the separatist folks are saying, in that there is this rise in ethno-nationalism in Iran because there is this greater pull, tug of war between so society and the state in Iran. What the people studying, you know, quote unquote, separatist movements don't necessarily see, and we actually all learned this from a, a friend of ours who spent some time doing fieldwork uh, inside Iran, uh, Wang Shuye, fieldwork by being detained in Evin prison, same prison Said was detained in, um, is uh, that people are actually in Iran who have this ethnic background able to balance it with a larger background. It's not like you are only Baluch. Someone who identifies as Baluch will also identify uh, as Iranian. Uh, you know, well, people you, you just, you just balance saw... multiple identities. It's like here I can tell you I'm an Iranian American, or here I can tell you uh, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a male, or, you know, and, and give you different, uh, different viewpoints into my identity. One need not be in conflict with the other. So, you know, strike two for the, the separatism crew is to see the embrace of ethnic identity as necessarily being to the detriment of civic nationalism. Like someone could be a proud Californian, but also a proud American. Um, and that this word nationalism is, is used intentionally, which I'll get to in the next part, but I just cut you off. No, no, you're right. I'm just was going to say another thing that we're on the anniversary of, which is yesterday, is, is Cyrus the Great Day. And you saw that uh, yesterday, specifically a few years ago, before the Islamic Republic really shut down the roads around um, Cyrus's tomb at uh, at Pazargad, um, you saw uh, you know lors and bakhtiaris in, in their traditional tribal clothing, uh, or or Azaris uh, speaking in Azari or singing Azari so uh, Azari songs at the tomb of Cyrus the Great, uh, holding hands. You know, so 
So they don't view their, uh, generally, their ethnic identity as being in conflict with their Iranian identity. Rather, uh, they're either uh, one and the same or, or they're complementary, uh, or, or they are, you know, you use the, the term Californian and American. Um, you know, they're, they're, they work, they go hand in glove uh, in many uh, circumstances. And it's, it is the Azari next to the Lor, next to the uh, Arab, next to the Turk, which, uh, you know, uh, feeds uh, that Iranian and contributes to that Iranian uh, heritage. Uh, and that's why I think in, in many ways, the regime is so afraid of, of the legacy of Cyrus and they block the roads around it because they don't want that uh, to be seen. Especially because some of these ethnic identities that exist in Iran, not all of them, some of these are part of the general Iranian people. Like this is not like something that, uh, you know, we create, uh, we create, it's something that's widely accepted, that like the lures, the courts, yeah. the, the Baluch, the Gilani, the Mazandaran, these, these are like part of the, you know, the wider uh, Iranian people as defined by scientists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's not that if you are a lure, you, you know, you see yourself as non-Iranian, you probably see yourself as a, you know, even, Pure Iranians. Yeah. I, I heard this from some of my lore friends. So that's why they need to create this like Persian identity, or Persian oppressor identity. So they can they can tell like to Mazandaranis, to lures, to Kurds that you are really different from them. I don't think that's true. I would also, uh, there, there is a lot of discussion to be had on this nationalism point, and let's get back to that. Um, but I, Saeed mentioned a lot about, you know, the, the, the coexistence, and you mentioned the physical shared space. Uh, Saeed mentioned the, the intermarrying. Uh, from a policy perspective, right, if you're ultimately doing or ultimately supporting this idea, and we've said that this idea is more likely to exist among elites rather than the masses, uh, if you're ultimately supporting this from a policy perspective, uh, why, why, and you want to do like a pressure policy against Iran, the, the Islamic Republic on the cheap, and your view is, okay, it's pressuring Iran, it's breaking up Iran, why is this a bad idea if you're trying to do a pressure policy uh, against Iran on the cheap? Well, because you don't learn the lessons of Kashmir, and you don't learn the lessons of Yugoslavia, meaning if you don't care about the Middle East, and you're trying to actively impede the room for maneuver of the Islamic Republic, and you are trying to get away from the region, and you care about great power competition and the Asia Pacific theater and containing in, uh, the rise of China, uh, you just want to have the Islamic Republic in check a little bit, and you want the Middle East to have less chaos than it does currently, because uh, unlike other jurisdictions in the Middle East, you know, Syria, uh, an example, uh, what the US uh, the, the threat from Syria is not necessarily jurisdiction of strong central authority, like the Assad regime is going to go uh, take over all of the Middle East. Uh, it's jurisdiction of weak central authority, where the Assad regime is more reliant on Iran and Russia, where Syria is punctured by uh, multiple terrorist groups, a potential, uh, not potential, in reality, is invaded by other countries, you know, Turkey in the north, for example. Uh, you fear the instability that comes from the lack of central authority. Uh, given the foreign and security policy of Islamic Republic, you know, policymakers rightly fear uh, the instability that comes from central power, central authority. So their thing is, okay, you denigrate central authority. Uh, but the lesson of population transfers, 
uh, in Kashmir and Yugoslavia here is instrumental because if you are trying to actively create less conflict in the Middle East as a way to cap the situation, to facilitate the pivot out of the region, why are you actively setting multiple peoples who have been able to live around each other at war with one another? The lesson of what Said is saying about intermarriage and what others have said about living in the shared physical space is that many of the language maps uh, that you see today in Iran are not necessarily going to be where the people actually live. Those are the historical areas where that is spoken as the mother, mother tongue, but it is not necessarily where only Kurds live or only Arabs live or only you know, uh, Turkic speakers or, or ethnic Azeris live. Uh, if you are going to, in the pure hypothetical, you know, segregate off one portion of Iran and draw an arbitrary line and create a new state or a statelet out of anything, uh, there would have to be a population transfer. How do you enforce that? How do you control for that? That is actively creating more chaos uh, rather than less. If you're actively giving the Islamic Republic or whatever central authority exists there, more of an opportunity for a headache. And if you, the great power, are looking to get away from conflicts, to cap conflicts, uh, this is actually a self-defeating move. And worse than that, if your view is, okay, we want a policy towards Iran that is in concert with American strategy and American values, you know, support for oppressed peoples, you are active, that would actively be a policy that leads to more oppression. At case in point, the collapse of Yugoslavia, that is not, a, that was not uh, a clean situation. What you saw in the Balkans in the 1990s uh, is immensely tragic. And the feeding of that ethno-national impulse uh, would not only be counter to you know, all that talk I had about the past two millennia of Iranian history and counter to what you're talking about in the shared experience, uh, it would be not learning from places where population transfers have gone wrong and there have been conflicts and there remain blood feuds. Uh, and that would be the worst thing for a US foreign policy that believes it is doing the right thing by its strategy to cap conflict and the right thing by its values, which is to empower people and to have people have their own representative government. And, and so I want this to one, add, yeah. I want to add something. It's also self-defeating in the sense, I think, that it makes the probability of regime going down uh, less. Exactly. For two reasons. One is that so you have this Islamist ideology in Iran, which is ruling the country. And you are right. You have an ascendance in the ethnic nationalism in Iran. But more than that, you have an ascendance in Iranian nationalism. Exactly. And as I said, many of these ethnicities, they, can, they are Iranians. So you have this like large force, stronger in terms of force, Iranian nationalism, strong in, uh, larger in terms of population. So the first thing is that if you go go for separatism, this force will not will sit will sit at home. The other option is that they may some of them may back the government. It's totally possible, but a, a big a big chunk of it will sit at home. 
That's the first one. The second one is that the, the issue of civil war, as you correctly said about Yugoslavia, no one wants civil war. I think for many Iranians, a civil war, the bloodshed is worse than the Islamic Republic. Because at least you know the Islamic Republic, there is some kind of order. Civil war is really horrific. And it's not something that the Iranian Iranians don't know about. It's not just Yugoslavia. They saw it in Afghanistan. You have so many Afghans who came to Iran after civil war. Now you have another wave. They saw it in Iraq. They saw it in Syria. So it's not that they don't know what happens in civil war. So if you push this, if, if it becomes a real option, if Iranians believe, oh, there is going to be a civil war, I don't think they will, they, many of them will not push for the class of the regime. Exactly. And, and in this sense, um, it becomes, again, not to, because we should be very careful. You know, again, I, I don't at all have the lived experience of you. I, I talked, you know, briefly about the comments by our, our, our friend uh, Wang Shuye and you, because you shared the, the Evinix, the unfortunate Evin uh, experience. But uh, it, it, is, it is counter to so much of the analytical policy impulse, which is how do you appropriately weaken uh, the Islamic Republic? You know, I, I wanna make sure I'm saying this as an analyst uh, and not an advocate that you are, you know, this sort of policy may end up empowering the sort of thing you want to detract from. You know, Iran-Iraq war is a, is a great example. Again, because it continues that thing from the Safavid dynasty, which is the collapse of central authority means the rise in peripheral authority. You have the collapse of the Pahlavi monarchy. Uh, you have basically a six to eight month period in Iran where this Khomeini and the, the nascent revolutionaries and the Komitechis and all these guys, the proto-Basijis are essentially uh, you know, killing anyone, you know, tied to the security establishment. You have basically officer, officer corps being killed or driven into exile or, or defecting, or you have basically people who don't know how to use many of the, the conventional capabilities that Iran has, the atrophying of Iran's conventional capabilities, the rise of multiple of these uh, 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 armed ethnic insurgencies, but also the invasion uh, of, a, of a foreign power on the back of the claim of supporting in this case, it wasn't the only claim, but it was one of the, the several, you know, political shields Saddam used uh, for the 1980 invasion of Iran, you know, supporting the Arabs in Khuzestan, for instance. Not only did the historical experience prove Saddam wrong, uh, you know, the evicting the, the multiple battles in Horam Shar, Susandir, these areas where you had lots of uh, ethnic minorities uh, uh, participating, uh, but ultimately, that conflict proved that the regime will use this, these sorts of crises to stabilize. One reason why scholars uh, you know, look at the 1982 to 1988 period as really an intensification period uh, of, and, a, and a coarsening and a hardening of Iran's domestic politics is that the cover of the foreign conflict allowed these guys to narrow the spectrum. Uh, allow these guys to become the elite that are at the helm uh, today. And it would be the worst thing in the world to afford the Islamic Republic yet another uh, opportunity uh, to do this, particularly when you have signs 
going back to the Alban protests, that the regime is echoing worse signs that existed in the late Shah's era about you know shortages, strikes, hyperinflation, uh, center periphery issues, unmatched expectations. Um, it would actually give them the fodder that they need. Uh, and in many ways, again, if you are developing a counter-Islamic public policy, uh, you know, you, it's good to have a Hippocratic Oath kind of approach to this, which is first, do no harm. Uh, don't do something that empowers your adversary. Uh, and in this case, yes, the regime, of course, would worry uh, about separatism. Uh, and of course, of course, it has a heavy-handed, uh, disgusting uh, approach to many of these provinces. I remember, I think, I don't, it was early in the Ahmadinejad government, uh, when Ahmadinejad went to Baluchistan, and even Ahmadinejad, someone, you know, a, a polyester-clad Holocaust denier, uh, he cried, or, and I, I remember, I forgot what the headline was, I don't know if it was Farce or somewhere else, but it was like Ahmadinejad Girist, like Ahmadinejad cried at the situation uh, in Baluchistan. But his government and his policies perpetuated uh, suffering uh, of, of the people there. Uh, not only would some of these policies actually end up perpetuating that suffering, but they would perpetuate the power of the people who could continue uh, that kind of suffering. So this is number one. It could actually empower uh, the regime in a perverse way. And number I just two, want to, before yeah. you go to number two, I want to add something. Khomeini actually said that. He said, Jang Yikneyemak, uh, the war was a God gift sent, uh, God sent gift. And there is a reason that after two years, they uh, he actually continued it. There is a you know the <clears throat> there is an idea that he was crazy or didn't understood, didn't understand what what happened. But I think one of the reasons that he they decided we want to continue this war was that because they used it to get rid of everyone. Without the war, they couldn't do that. It, it would be very difficult. It, it wouldn't be that easy for them because they weren't that popular after like uh, one year. They, they, many people understood what was, what was happening. But then there, you had the war and you have like all these uh, movements uh, on the border and they used it to consolidate the power. And I'm very worried that we may, there are some people who are pushing for this right now on the northwest border, Azerbaijan, Turkey, and Iran. I, I think it, it conflict there, military conflict there, would be very bad in truth. Well, definitely for an Iran policy whose goal is to the collapse of the Islamist regime in Iran. I think if you have some kind of military conflict there, it would it would really benefit the regime. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just draw a little bit of a separation between uh, Turkey and Azerbaijan and even de facto Israel being able to put pressure on Iran through the Caucasus versus, uh, you know, uh, some kind of plot to, you know, separate uh, Iran and Azerbaijan. Uh, because I'm, I'm all for solidifying the impression in the minds of the regime that it is encircled. I think just recently, uh, Khamenei uh, said something about. No, no, the... I'm, I'm not. I'm not talking no, 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 about yeah, I, I encircling it. But I think if you, so let me put it this way: whenever you have a war with the Islamist regime, that it that, that it won't uh, topple it, like the Iran Iraq War, it actually helps it because the regime always is dealing with these 
legitimacy crisis. And whenever you have this nationalistic war, the regime find, finds a space to save itself for a few years, well, that, for a decade, something like that. Can, can I just add one brief thing? That, that, uh, that notion of what Saeed's talking about, rally around the flag, when it comes to Iran policy, I think is very often used, but very often incorrectly. But in this case, it's it's exactly right. I think it, you know, Ben, we'll, we'll see what you say. That, but that that's what we saw uh, with Saddam's invasion of Iran. The the actual opposition to the regime um, could do very little at that time when its country was um, invaded, not by a liberating force, but by <clears throat> an invading force that that was not trying to topple the regime, but that was trying to that was against not only the Islamic, but against the country of Iran. The, the real opposition to the to the regime could do very little when its country is being invaded. When it uh, and uh, similarly, if there were to be a war pushed by foreign powers um, to to take advantage of the country, that the 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 rally around the flag effect would likely be very real. I mean, it's it's not like the rally around the flag effect that people talk about with sanctions when Iranians respond in the streets, you know, our enemy is right here, they lie when they say it's America, if there were a force that were looking to invade the country, and you know, not to topple the regime, but simply to take advantage of Iran's weak state, people would in all likelihood, actually rally around the flag and be forced to rally to the current um, force maintaining Iran's territorial integrity. And I think actually, the this is just my analysis, not that I don't have any information, but I think the Revolutionary Guards actually tried to make this recent conflict with Azerbaijan push it towards some kind yeah. of military conflict. And because the, the posture was very strange, like, you know, in terms of what actually happened, it wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't that, it wasn't a big crisis. But the guard really was pushing it at, at, at some point. And I think the, the guard actually doesn't mind the limited military conflict with a lesser force in terms of consolidating more power and benefiting from the nationalist sentiment. Because the guard right now, the opinion about the guard is very low. So if the guard can, the revolutionary guard can, you know, portray itself as the guardian of the country against an invading force. That really benefits the guard too. Yeah, this is you. You, you get to the the, the transposition uh, of what the guards are actually guarding. Let's remember that the title, IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. They are not uh, in, in in the purest sense guarding the nation. They are intentionally guarding an idea, an idea that is housed in the elites uh, of this government, of, of the Islamic Republic. Uh, they are guarding that uh, with their lives and by causing death. You know, you know, Iran does like, the Islamic Republic does like these limited conflicts. Just a few months ago, a month and a half ago, September, uh, there was a, a rocket barrage uh, at a Kurdistan uh, opposition group in northern Iraq. They did the same thing in July 2019, if I'm not mistaken, and then also in 2018, in September, October 2018. September, October 2018, they used ballistic missiles 
July 2019, rockets, conventional artillery. September 2021, rockets, conventional artillery. They actually like uh, this sort of stuff because they are actively trying to co-opt a force that exists. And this goes back to the nationalism thing and, and do no harm. Uh, what an overt policy of support for, you know, potential separatism, potential secession, you know, tear Iran up uh, would do is that it would empower the guards to try to do what they are doing now with these more limited set piece conflicts, which is to shed that label of IRGC, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, and try to win this Iranian label, try to win uh, this uh, label of uh, you know, guarding the actual country, when in fact their behavior, their policies at home and abroad are the things that Iranians of all stripes actually resent. Are their behavior and their policies are the things that have actually impeded Iran, are the things that have actually kept back Iran, are the things that have impeded the growth of the country, are the things that have made life hell uh, for Iranians uh, who actually care about the country inside that country. Uh, it would allow them to make that transition, perhaps not a seamless transition, but it would allow them to make that transition. And that is very, very dangerous. And this is my big thing about the protests from 2017 to 2020 is that it's properly understanding civic nationalism. We, as a policy community in Washington, we haven't done that. Uh, but also it's, it's understanding that this is a malleable force and a force that can go in many directions. And the 2017 to 2020 and to 2021 protests are actually an indicator for policymakers to tell you of what a nationalist future of Iran could look like. The people doing the protests are very different. They're actually from rural areas. They're actually uh, in favor of a less interventionist foreign policy. They actually have national icons. They actually tell you about what they would like for the future. They actively tell you uh, what political officials, Rouhani, Khamenei, they shun. You know, I'm so glad, Kamran, uh, you mentioned the, the rally around the flag, because that's what everybody said after the killing of Soleimani. Uh, but that rally lasted only a few days, because then you had Iranians out on the streets again, protesting against that downing of the Ukraine airliner with so many innocent lives lost. You had that in Tehran, you had that in the capital. Just recently, again, you want to talk about ethnic conflagration. You had the protests in Khuzestan. Yes, of course, there is an ethno-separatist component there. You can't deny that. But also you can't deny, you know, <laughs> to borrow a phrase from former President Nixon, this great silent majority that is also increasingly not becoming silent vis-a-vis uh, -vis that separatist elite. And that's why when you had protests in Iran and Azerbaijan, it wasn't a, they're protesting for separatism, we should protest for separatism. It was in favor of what was going on because they too have been discriminated against and their target was not Iran, their target was the government of the Islamic Republic. Uh, and this is a very important thing for Western policymakers to, to, to take note of. You had lords and Arabs again, uh, in, in, in Iran's southwest, in Iza and Susan Gert, you explained this brilliantly, Kamran, in, in, a, in a video Nufti put out, um, coming together. And reading the rise of nationalism inside Iran as ethno-nationalism misses this civic nationalism component entirely, and worse, allows the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps to try to move in and co-opt what's left of that civic nationalism. And you would be giving the regime that final prop that they needed. And 
I remember one of the uh, very vivid attempts when the Guard Corps tried to do this. And this is why uh, I actually trace a lot of nationalist theory, a lot of nationalist history, a lot of nationalist language. There's excellent books we can talk about. Uh, you know, uh, Hobswam, Benedict Anderson, Yael Tamir, we can talk about all these different uh, scholars who've who, you know, written brilliantly uh, about nationalism and nationalist theory and about the importance of people and the importance of shared history, the importance of shared customs and the importance of territory uh, to nationalism. So with the ISIS attacks in Iran, inside Iranian territory, remember the mausoleum attack of Khomeini, uh, the Iranian response in 2017, if I'm not mistaken, was a, was a ballistic missile barrage at uh, ISIS positions in Eastern Syria. Uh, Saeed, you may have, you probably have seen this in real life in, in, in I've only seen pictures that there have been in Vanak Square, you know, the, the big place where they have this uh, poster, this roundabout in, in, in Vanak, there's this, this poster and the yeah, regime yeah. likes to put different uh, pro-regime imagery up on that big building where, you know, it's kind of like a rounded shikam. It's, like it's, like, it's, like, it's like Times Square, Times yeah, Square has, billboards. It has this, this roundabout to it. And so there's a lot of imagery, a lot of pro-regime imagery often on uh, that rounded building. Uh, in, uh, in in this part of uh, Tehran. And I remember the, the one after the launch of, after the missile operation uh, was an attempt by the Guard Corps to do exactly what I'm saying. And it was a hand of a, you couldn't see the head, but it was a body in an IRGC uniform and it was a hand and each finger was launching ballistic missiles. And it, you had the, the guy had the IRGC logo and it just had up in Persian on the top, we are Iran's guardian. No, your behavior is not the guardian of Iran. Your behavior is the guardian <laughs> of this Islamist autocracy. Uh, but that is a move to take advantage of attacks on the territory, again, the primacy of territory in nationalist theory, to try to shed that label and to try to take advantage of this brief lull, this brief period, and move into this space, which is the, you know, the, the, the co-opt, the civic nationalism when you can space at every time a crisis presents itself. So again, as a policymaker, think of this issue. Uh, think of this issue. Uh, ben, I'm, uh, you've been very generous with, with, uh, with us with your time, and I know you have places to be. I want to just tackle one last issue, if I can, and it's related to this. So, but we, we've talked about the issue of, of supporting separatism and secessionism and how it's regressive it's out of touch with history and the contemporary context and really makes no sense it's just being supported by you know some separatist elites and you know you're you're perhaps too polite to say it but i'll say it you know some of the people in the west who are supporting it are you know lobbyists of some of these countries but that's a different issue for a different time uh, what i want to talk about is we've mentioned how this could in fact cement the authority and the longevity of the islamic republic Let's say, and I think that's likely, let's say that doesn't happen. Let's say we're wrong. And one of the other possible outcomes is that this actually does cause the collapse of the regime, that whether it's because of U.S. support of secessionism or separatism or others, or these, these uh, groups are effective, and one way the regime falls and these groups gain the upper hand. And in uh, uh, Khuzestan or Baruchestan or Kurdistan, we start to see breakaway provinces, statelets, as you referred to them. Something that strikes me, and Said and I have, have spoken about this, and he mentioned it earlier, I don't think it's very likely that if that were to be the case, that what would remain of Iran at that point 
the nationalist forces, if you will, the, the, the center of the country, and even broad swaths of the population inside those breakaway renegade provinces or new statelets would be okay with that. They won't simply accept that status quo, uh, in my view. And that would lead to a significant conflict in the region. This is just the civil war that Said's talking about. But, but I want you to assess it for us, if you will, from a U.S. policy perspective, and, and even to an extent from a regional policy perspective. Wouldn't that, you know, especially if, let's say, you have some Arab countries supporting uh, Arab separatist groups, or you have some other, the Azerbaijanis or others supporting separatists in the northern part of the country, uh, or in Balochistan, doesn't that, you know, for, for America, who is sort of on the left and the right on this trend of getting out of conflicts in the Middle East, doesn't that bode a serious threat of forcing <laughs> America, or or especially if let's say you have some Arab countries, countries, countries not only to deal with a huge uh, refugee crisis Arab that would overtake groups, Europe, or you have some other dwarf the Azerbaijanis or other supporting separatists in the northern part of, of the country, of, of uh, or really having a serious conflict Doesn't that, you know, in the region for America, which sort of informs the left and the right on the trend of getting out of conflicts in the Middle East? Doesn't that bode a serious threat of forcing America or other Western countries, certainly regional countries, not only to deal with a huge the refugee crisis that would overtake ages, Europe and likely dwarf whatever we've just seen in Syria, doesn't it pose the threat of, of, of really having a serious conflict in the region into which Western forces, the US and regional forces would be forced uh, to play a role and be really sucked into? Oh, for, oh, for sure. Uh, and, and this is, again, for US policymakers, US strategists, you know, the, the, the lesson of the Middle East in the past two decades is it can always get worse. <laughs> you, you think you've hit rock, but it can always get worse. <laughs> and uh, another lesson is be able to anticipate the most likely and least likely moves of your adversary. And before you go with plan A, come up with plan C, D, E, F to counteract your adversary's most likely and most effective plan B. You know, having steps one and three thought, thought, thought out. So when step two happens, you're not caught with your pants down. And in this instance, you know, uh, Iran has an incentive or what would be left of the government of the Islamic Republic in one of these instances where one or two or three or many or only one or any number of statelets would be created uh, with such a policy uh, with, you know, limited foreign backing, select foreign backing, however you want to have it, is that that remainder government would have every incentive to go start a war and retake that territory. And in this sense, they would have an impression of, let's hypothetically say it's an American-backed statelet that is created. They would have an impression uh, of American resolve. And that impression is, well, in, what was it, 2017 or 2018 uh, with the referendum of the KRG? The US did not back that. What mm -hmm. happened after the referendum? Pro-Iran Shia militias, I believe Qasem Soleimani was there and alive at the time, moved to crush. They, they moved to kill innocents. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, uh, Uncle Sam was missing in action. Now, now, obviously, the U.S. did not, you know, push for the, push for the referendum. That's something within uh, northern Iraq, within Iraqi Kurdistan's domestic politics. Uh, but, but nonetheless, in an attempt by the local actor to force the hand of the patron to get more support, the patron bugged out and ended up not supporting. You saw a similar thing with the Kurds in Syria and under former President Trump, for instance. And in this sense, you would end up vindicating the worst of the worst actors inside Iran, people like uh, former commander of the Quds Force, Qasem Soleimani, who 
in 2010 said to an Iraqi official, and it was reported publicly in English in 2013, uh, this line about America. And Washington should always think about this line when it's looking at this Middle Eastern partnerships, alliances, and be try hard not to prove this line correct. And the line is, we're not like the Americans, we don't abandon our friends. You don't want to be in the business of ex post proving Qasem Soleimani right. So to prove him wrong, you would draw US forces in into the region to support uh, this uh, new state that would be created hypothetically. This is not a Kuwait situation where there's a state that exists and actually has some kind of financial relationship with Iraq and the Iraqis didn't pay back the loans from the Iran-Iraq war and the, the Iraqis that manufacture some crisis and Washington waffles and ultimately Iraq invades and the US has to get a coalition to kick Iraq out. This would be the converse of that because there is no Kuwait version that exists yet. Why? Because we talked about in the beginning of this podcast that Iran is smaller today than has existed in the past. It's not like it's irredentively gone something under an irredentist nationalist cause and conquered territory, and you are trying to evict them from that territory. There is this history that comes with different people living in the same spaces, and you can't ignore that history. And that history is going to be bearing down on you uh, in steps two, three, and four of any scenario of support for you know, secession or separatism inside Iran. And not also, not also, again, would it be ignorant of the, the Kashmir and the Yugoslavia uh, examples. Um, it, it would be, uh, in, in that sense, it would be a lose-lose if how could you generate support for, for some kind of intervention when you know, there is significant support on the left and right for less active uh, intervention there. I, I would be curious to see how a US policymaker would do that. And in the hypothetical instance that, uh, the support for that statelet would not come from uh, you know, a major foreign player like America and the West, but from a much more smaller localized regional actor, hypothetically, right? Hypothetically, Azerbaijan. Iran might do what it just did recently, which is begin to bear its teeth. The major military drill Said was talking about what happened after that major military drill. Azerbaijan released the two truckers that it had jailed. You know, in, in essence, the regime's bearing of teeth worked because the regime is counting whatever is left of it on forcing accommodation by smaller, less capable powers. And that's exactly what you see happening right now with Saudi-Iranian diplomacy. Why are the Saudis doing bilateral direct diplomacy with the Islamic Republic? Because the Islamic Republic has erected a conflict in Yemen right next door to them. And the Saudis feel that US support has been waffling. And in 2019, we had a front row seat to how US did, the US did not end up standing up to something that's called the Carter Doctrine. Uh, when, when the Iranians had you know, attacked tankers, then shot down US drones and ultimately attacked oil installations. There was no kinetic response by Washington to any of this. And this is things that are Washington's interests. So why would regional states think that Washington would have its back when Washington didn't do so do the things that were in its own interest? So Iran is gonna go again and try to resurrect that Soleimani line with these other states to say, accommodate me, accommodate the Islamic Republic, accommodate the regime's foreign and security policy, and you'll be safer. And that is a very dangerous position to be in, particularly as America is having a diminishing military footprint uh, in the region. Uh, I, I, I think US policy regarding the collapse of the regime should be that you, you have the collapse of the regime and you have a government in place which is friendly to the, to, to the United States and which has a 
less expansionary regional policy can live can live with uh, its neighbors. And if US goes for that, for that secession policy, if the regime falls, it's not going to happen. So if yes. the US pushes the secession, the regime falls, the next government will not be pro-US. And exactly. that would be the biggest loss. And in the scenario that Cameron and, I, and you described, which of these, I don't think US goes in, as you said, I, I think it's very uh, difficult to forecast the situation that US goes into, I don't know, to support the Khuzestan state, which doesn't exist. I don't see many regional powers who have the this interest to do that. Like for the uh, Arab monarchies in the Persian Gulf, so you have the Khuzestan, which is a mixed population of uh, Arabs and other ethnicities. But these Arabs are Shia. So why why would you like like uh, how can you do that? The most like likeliest supporter would be Iraq, which itself is a really a failed state. Same with Kurdistan. Like, you know, the only place that I see something is, is in Azerbaijan. In, in other places, I really don't see any regional backer who want to do that. In, in Baluchistan, the Pakistanis have problem with their Baluchs. I don't think they are, they have any interest to, you know, to tell the Iranian Baluch to, to Come, come, come and uh, become part of part of Pakistan, Balochistan. So it's a very I really don't see see many regional powers who whose interest in a situation that the regime has collapsed is to support these mini states. I think the interest is to to have it have an Iran have a government in Iran, which is uh, part of the general Western alliance and can work with its neighbors. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's right. And I think we have a whole, Behnam already offered us his, his services to come back for uh, part two at some point. And we have to talk about his ideal. Uh, last, thing, sorry, last thing that came to mind. I'm so sorry to interrupt. Please go ahead. As we say, <laughs> uh, is, you know, the, the, major orienting foreign and security policy challenge of Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran to the US now is the nuclear program and has really been for the past few decades. Um, but particularly in 2002 with the revelation of some of these sites and activities. Um, what does this do for the nuclear program? Uh, it, it doesn't do anything. <laughs> it, it may even impede counterproliferation policy depending on what entity, where you're supporting. Okay, some of the missile bases are much more spread out. Okay, military bases are much more spread out. But I don't necessarily see how this fits into larger U.S. foreign and security policy. Again, if you are thinking of low-cost ways to turn the screws on the Islamic Republic, uh, this would seem to be counterproductive. And it would be counterproductive towards the one long hole of unifying bipartisan interest towards a pressure policy on Iran, which is how to prevent the Islamic Republic of Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Uh, this would not at all not solve that. It will put fire <laughs> on, on that. I, I, I think that's exactly right. I think we largely agree, um, but it's always a pleasure to be uh, educated uh, by 
Behnam Ben Talblu, um, senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Um, Saeed, thanks for spending your Saturday with us. Uh, Behnam, thank you for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. I, I personally learned uh, so much, uh, and I was really uh, glad to get to listen uh, to the both of you today. And uh, and I think Saeed will be on the same page as me when I say we're going to have to take you up on your offer to bring you back for another episode to talk about what should ideal U.S. policy be now that we've described uh, what a nightmare supporting secessionism and separatism would be both for Iran, the region uh, and for the U.S. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Uh, it was I, too, who learned uh, immensely uh, from you, Kamran, and from you, Said. And again, I hope to, to continue uh, the conversation. Uh, Iran will be in the headlines uh, and it will be on uh, many's hearts and many's minds. And when Iran is back in the high, uh, the headlines, as always, you can uh, listen uh, to uh, and read what Behnam has to say, uh, probably in whatever uh, the most uh, impressive international outlet is uh, next time. So, Behnam, thanks again uh, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Behnam. Have a good day. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.